You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and today we have got a fantastic episode in store. We're going to be chatting with one of our listeners, Mitchell Patterson, about an absolute stud of a buck that he took in uh, early November this year. We actually uh, actually killed on the same day, I believe, November 2nd. So um, beautiful, beautiful deer. If you haven't, head over to uh, the landing page on the Sportsman's Nation, or you can go check out my Instagram page and you can see a picture of this deer. Just an absolutely outstanding deer. Uh, 21, I think he said 21 and a half inches wide, 14 points, just beautiful deer. So anyway, head over and check that out. A couple of housekeeping things. If you have not done these things already, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. If you would, it would really help us out. Number one, Head over and subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you access your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. Leave us a written review. Uh, if you can do that for us, it would be fantastic. Uh, lets other people know that, hey, maybe this isn't a bad podcast to listen to. Maybe it is worth an hour or so of their time. Uh, next thing you can do for us, head over to Instagram. Uh, follow along with us there so you can see all the things that we are up to. Uh, and then finally, share this podcast with uh, your friends and family who may also enjoy hearing stories of big bucks hitting the ground uh, and seeing what we can learn from from those conversations. This is the absolute best way f- for us to uh, grow this podcast and be able to keep doing what it is that we love doing here. So 
With all of that out of the way, let's jump into this conversation with Mitchell Patterson. I think we're going to learn a couple of big time lessons that we can all take with us into the woods next year. I know we're uh, we're at that time frame now where uh, really seasons are wrapping up. I mean, a lot of you are going to be out doing the late season thing, but uh, for me, we're pretty much I'm pretty much going to be done for the year. My attention is going to focus uh, on uh, maybe some pheasant hunting here in the next couple of weeks. Maybe uh, start looking in toward turkey season and uh but definitely doing a lot of uh honeydews and dad duty around the house so that i can earn some some points and save up for whenever turkey season rolls around so anyway let's jump right into the episode without too much further yapping on my part joining me for this episode of the wisconsin sportsman podcast is mr mitchell patterson to talk about an absolutely stunning buck that he took uh here in the early part of november how's it going man really well how you doing i'm doing well thanks for joining me thanks for taking an afternoon out of work man i didn't know you were going to do that so this is pretty sweet Uh, you got Uh, me out of work i'm happy to (laughs) well anytime you want to come on and talk about deer and deer hunting and you want to take off of work and we can do this thing in the middle of the day and i don't have to put my wife out uh you know get her to watch the kids so i can go record a podcast man you just let me know we'll do it so sounds good to me um well look hey we got connected on uh instagram and uh, it, it seems like we're in kind of a similar life stage a little bit. So uh, why don't you kick things off and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do for a living, and uh, that sort of that kind of thing, general profile stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I just turned uh, I just turned 30, the dirty 30. Um, I, got, I got a couple of young kids. You might hear them upstairs above me here, but uh, three-and-a-half-year-old and a, a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Um, I am a carpenter. I build, build custom homes, a little family, family business. So that's how I got to take off of work today without, without too much grief. But, uh, um, yeah, I've, uh, been, been hunting my whole life, really grew up, grew up with it. Both my mom and dad are big, big bow hunters and, um, fortunately married into a family that, uh, well, they're not big hunters, but they, they own some good properties. So I got lucky there, but, uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So where are you from originally? I am from Fort Atkinson. Um, okay. that's where I, I still live now. Uh, went up, went up to school at UW Stevens point and, uh, spent four years there having a great time and decided I, just kind of wanted to jump right back into the family business. So awesome. Awesome. <laughs> well, home. uh, what's that back home now, back in Fort, man, that's sweet. That's sweet. So, um, <clears throat> you've got family in the area, which is always nice, especially when those kids start coming along. I'm, I'm learning when your family's a thousand miles away, it makes things a little different when you have young kids. Like yes. it, it can be real tough. It can be yes. tough. So, uh, all right. So you're in Fort, Fort Atkinson, um, tell me a little bit about, you know, you don't have to get too specific because you, you've killed a slammer deer. Uh, you don't have to get too specific, but tell me what part of the state are you hunting? Um, mostly. So around Fort here, we're down in the uh, South central, Southeast, um, part of the state, but I also have, uh, I have some family over on the Southwest side of the state in Grant County. And that's actually where, that's where this year's big boy came from. So but I've killed, killed some good ones back home here and, and over on the, the west side of the state. So, Yeah, it's no secret Southern Wisconsin's got some, some pretty big 
big bucks. If that cat was in the bag, Dan Infault let it out a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, well, I, so there's there's some there's some good ones. I'm I'm pretty close to pretty close to where where Dan hunts over around here around the Rome area. So, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, you get you get over towards the the Mississippi and the bluffs, and you start getting into some some real good bucks over there too. So, yep. Now, do you notice a lot of difference in pressure between uh, where you're hunting and then further west? Um, yes, it's it, it's kind of different different pressure, I guess. You know, over over where we're at on the west side of the state is is all pretty pretty big timber. You know, you got big huge tracks of timber where you got two three miles straight of continuous woods, and you just don't have that here. In Jefferson County, it's more kind of the 20, 30 acre pockets of timber and then some marsh and then a lot of ag fields. And um, I do feel like you, the, the bucks around here feel pressure a little bit more where over over there, I think they have a little more room to to get away from hunters maybe and, and uh, a lot more timber to use over that way. So I feel I feel like there's less less pressure over that way when I'm hunting in Grant County versus here in Jefferson. Sure. Sure. So you mentioned, um, <clears throat> a little bit of kind of how the terrain works. So tell me about the, the, the specific terrain of where you're hunting there close to home and then where you're, uh, like where you're hunting out West. Sure. Um, almost every property that I've got around here is, um, well, every property that I hunt around here is 20 acres or less of, of timber. Anyways, there's a lot of, you know, we are, my in-laws family farm is 120 acres, but only about 22 of its timber. The rest is all agricultural. So, um, it's, it, it, it's more marshy timber pockets here. And, uh, and that's good too. The, the deer have a lot of, a lot of marsh around to, to hide in. And I do think that helps, helps the age structure of the bucks and, uh, or over, over towards the West side of the state, it's, uh, a lot bigger timber, the rolling hills, some, some, some bigger bluff type country where I'm at, not, not the real big bluffs, but, uh, it's, it's definitely two very different ball games when it comes to hunting here at home. And then you go two hours West and it's, uh, it's very different getting into the hills and having to play some thermals and get into the, the, uh, hill, hill country bedding, stuff like that. So. So are you hunting then a, a mix of private and public land or is it all private? Is it all public um, or how's that play out? Over on the, on the West side of the state, it's really private. Um, here I've got two different private chunks that I hunt. Um, last year I got into some public and I had some really good bucks on camera. Um, never had any encounters with them, but I had some, I had some good public land sits last year. Um, this year I, I didn't, uh, I didn't get too much into the public this year. I was doing a lot of land improvements on one of the properties and, and I just, I, I never felt that, that urge to go see what was happening at the public. So I didn't make it over to the public this year, but it is, it is one, one thing that I'd like to someday shoot a nice, mature public land buck it's definitely on my on my bucket list so sure so um you said that this this big one that we're going to be talking about here in a minute came from the southwest part of the state and so um 
one of your one of your properties that you're that you're hunting over there. What um, tell me a bit about this property? Like how how long have you been hunting it? Uh, is it relatively new to you? What have you learned about sort of how the deer use it? What what did you basically have in your back pocket heading into this season as far as knowledge of the property? Sure. Um, so my uncle bought the property in, I believe, 1994. Don't quote me on that, but somewhere around the early 90s, which is only a few years after I was born. So that property <laughs> has been <laughs> property's been in our family. I mean, I grew up hunting that property and um so I, I, I have a pretty good idea of, of the lay of the land and how the deer travel through there. And um, he did log it um, probably about 10 years ago now. It, it was logged, which really did change the dynamic of the property and the, uh, the way the deer used it. And so it's not, uh, it, it is still a little bit changing every year. You know, the deer use it a little differently as the, as the ground cover changes and, uh, it's, it's still pretty similar every year though. You, you know, your you know, where your good bedding, the areas are, you know, where your good funnels are, um, you know, where the, the community scrapes are almost every year. So it's, it, it's a, it's definitely an upper hand that I had on, on the buck I shot this year, but you know, he is still a mature wild animal. So I would say he still had the upper hand on me. <laughs> oh, for sure, man. And this thing is a beautiful buck. I'm going to, with your permission, I'm going to post a picture of it whenever uh, we put this podcast out, man. It's just a, an absolute stud, like yeah, like everything you want when you think about a Southern Wisconsin deer. I mean, he's got some mass, he's got a lot of width, he's got tines all over the place. Yeah. Uh, just a, just a good looking deer. So, yeah, uh, well, you met, you mentioned your uncle had this, uh, had this property logged. And uh, it's sort of settling out now, maybe not changing quite as rapidly as it did. Would you say that that logging has uh, improved the hunting, not really changed the quality of the hunting? How how would you say it's impacted hunting quality wise? Um, I I don't I don't think it drastically changed it. It 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 added a few more areas of good thick bedding cover. I will definitely say that, um, before the logging, you know, there was, there were two or three real key bedding areas that we could kind of focus on where now they left all the treetops down. So it created a, just kind of a mess throughout the whole, the whole place. But, um, now there's, there's a little more sporadic bedding deer can almost bed, you know, they can bed kind of anywhere they want. Um, so it, it it definitely changed how they used it and how the bedding was used, but um, the hunting was still good. It didn't it didn't hurt the hunting. Uh, I think the the deer for the most part still traveled the property about the same way, and um, it, it I think in the end here or not in the end, but over the years it's it's improved it. I would say um, not drastically by any means, but it certainly has improved it a little bit. You know, it's not always, it's not always true that, uh, when you improve the habitat for the animals, it doesn't always necessarily create better hunting. Uh, you know, more, more bedding cover, uh, can, can be a good or a bad thing, right? Like you, you just end up spreading the deer out a little bit more. And, uh, you know, that's something I learned coming from, coming from down South where, you know, we hunt a lot of pine thickets and those sorts of things. And, and people talk a lot about how, 
you know, well, deer don't really bed through the whole thing. It's like, eh, I hunted there for a long time. They they bed through a lot of it. Um, yeah. Maybe not the whole thing, but they bed in a lot of it. So, yeah, uh, yeah spread out bedding can be tough to tough to compete with. And being being that it's hill country over there, you still have you still have your areas where they're going to bed up closer to closer to points and things like that. So it, that didn't really change, but um, they certainly are a bit more spread around as far as the bedding is concerned, no doubt. Yeah. So you've got some actual topography yep. to kind of govern a bit of where they're, where the deer are going to be bedding. Yep. So yep. what, what's your success been like on this property in the past? Like have you, have you killed a lot of nice deer on this property or is this, this kind of like the first whopper that you've taken there? Um, I've killed, uh, I've killed four bucks on the property. My first, my first one was, uh, about a 150 inch nine point. So another real, real nice, respectable buck for sure. Um, and then I've killed a couple like one forties type eights out there. Um, we, we try and pretty strictly manage it for, bucks and um that's that's kind of kept me from from not shooting as many as i'd like to as the, <laughs> uh, but, um it, it, that's kind of the way i grew up though also was the quality deer management so um you know it was it was kind of always a an unwritten rule of the property that we try and shoot anything 140 inches or better and and as we as we kind of kept moving through the QDM, that number kept growing up a little bit higher and higher. And, and then it wasn't as much a number as it is, you know, just trying to kill a mature deer. So, mm-hmm. um, we've taken some real good ones off there. My dad has killed a couple in the upper one fifties, a uh, couple uncles, uncles that hunt there have killed some nice one forties, one fifties. So it's, it's, Very uh, cool. this is definitely my biggest one that I've taken out there. I think it's, it's probably the biggest one to come off the property. So, wow. Wow. So, so tell me about, it sounds like you've got uh, a lot of folks that, that are hunting this property. How, how big is it? Uh, we've got about 300 acres total to hunt. Okay. Um, my okay. uncle has 220 and then we lease, we lease a neighboring, uh, 80. So we got about okay. 300 total. Gotcha. And what, what does, what does that hunting uh, strategy look like when you guys are are approaching this property? You know, um, we've got folks that are listening to this who are going to be sort of of the, of the Dan Infault strategy of things like, man, I'm going right into the bedding and I want to watch him stand up out of his bed. Uh, You've got folks who are influenced by the hunting public. They're like, Hey, I'm just going to scout through all of this really good area and, um, you know, set up on the freshest sign. When you're hunting a 300 acre piece with multiple family members, those are probably some pretty high risk, high reward, uh, potentially no reward kind of situations. So what's the overall strategy when you guys approach this property? Um, yeah, you know, we, none of us are really, uh, really big on the trying to hug, hug, hug the bedding as, as much as we can. And I think for us personally, we've noticed that if you, if you bump some of these bucks out of the area, they, they just won't come back. And uh, that's been kind of one of the things that we, we try and, we try and hunt the fringes of the bedding and, and really over there, we, we focus real hard on, on the transitional areas um, where a buck is going to be cruising between bedding areas or um, between bedding and food and 
you know, we we also have the the ability to know where where a lot of these bucks are are hanging. You know, every year every year we know that there's likely going to be a mature buck that uses this 40. Um, there's, there's just those good, those good buck bedding and doe bedding areas that, so we're pretty lucky to, to know the land like that and, and be able to hunt similar areas every year. You know, we, we still, we still certainly go in and, and do, do some scouting and some mid season scouting and, and see, you know, maybe if, if there's some new, new signs showing up in different spots and, and, we we hunt almost solely from uh climbing tree stands so we have we have a lot of stands that are or trees that are set up for climbers already and um we uh we hunt a lot that way and and it's it's kind of a lot of just going off of what's what's on the cameras or what's showing on cameras and and uh hitting those historic big buck areas knowing that eventually there's going to be a big buck in here looking for a doe. And so there's, there's honestly not, uh, I don't want to say I'm not influenced by any of those, those big names, but I wouldn't say that I hunt exclusively like Dan or like THP or any, any of those guys. Um, but you know, kind of take, take a little bit of, of the knowledge that you gain from each one of them and try and put it towards your specific property. I, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, ha- I haven't been here in Wisconsin for very long. Um, one of the things that I, I didn't necessarily see a lot in the South just cause I, d- I didn't have a lot of success hunting in the South. Um, but I've been here now, um, for, uh, I was able to post season scout the first year I got here. And then I've now hunted two archery seasons here. And one of the things that I found is, is, uh, especially on the public, even the public pieces that I'm, that I'm hunting, uh, I've found those spots where I can pretty much count on there's going to be a mature buck in here at this time of year. And actually what, you know, the, the mature buck encounters I had this year are from spots that I found two years ago, you know, and then hunted them last year and okay, there they are, you know, and then so went back in around the same times this year and oh, there they are again, you know, different buck maybe or whatever, but, but using the same areas in pretty similar ways. So I, I think that's something people can people can take away and say, okay, where, what are those areas where you just, you're seeing that sign pop up every single, every single year, you know, and the today when the, you know, all the, the fuss is about hunting the freshest and hottest sign, you got to scout your way in or, or what are you even doing with your life? Uh, that, that's a great way to hunt that, that no, not knocking that at all. Um, but there's also something to be said for, Hey, <laughs> I've been hunting this place for five years and every year there's, you know, a huge community scrape right here. Like, man, go hunt that thing. Don't, don't yep. go try to find a new one, like hunt it. And I don't, and I don't think that's, that's a private property specific thing either. Like you're saying, no. you know, I, th- I think a lot of guys can take a little bit away from that, that, you know, if you find one of those, those hot spots where, where you, you have an encounter on public land with a mature buck, man, you can almost not guarantee that you're going to have another encounter in, in this, that area the following year, but he's there for a reason a lot of the times you know and and a lot of those those mature bucks they you know i've always heard one one mature buck moves out the next one comes in that kind of thing you know like and that that really shows on on our specific property that i could i could go sit well i almost sat in the same tree this year that i had an encounter with the buck last year so you know it's just 
you kind of you kind of learn where they're going to be and and those those big ones seem to rotate in there as soon as one one is gone so yeah the 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 most mature bucks in the area finding the places that give them the most advantage yeah. right that that's what it's all about mm-hmm. uh so let's let's shift gears then i, I don't want to i don't want to uh bury the lead too far um tell me about this buck you shot man he's an impressive deer yeah so i i haven't I haven't been uh, been naming bucks all that long. I always thought it was kind of silly to name a buck, but uh, <laughs> I've gotten a little <laughs> bit more into it the last few years. And uh, so when he first showed up this year, he he had uh, a real nice typical 14-point frame. And uh, I was just calling him the Big 14 for a while. Pretty pretty classic name there. But um I'm a, I'm an oddball. I'm a Wisconsin, Wisconsin boy, but I'm a Cubs fan. So, uh, I decided to name him Ernie after Ernie Banks, who was number 14 for the Cubs. Just, uh, I don't know where, where I got the idea, but I started calling him Ernie, but, uh, yeah, so he, uh, he showed up. Let's see. I had one, one real blurry picture of him in right after velvet. And uh, I could tell he was a good buck. Couldn't see exactly what he was. And then it was it was quite a while before I had another good picture of him. Um, but when I did, he he finally showed up on a camera and he posed in front of the camera for about ten minutes. So I got a lot of real good looks at him, and I knew knew right away he was he was going to be target number one. So um, just a big big wide for I mean very rarely do you see a typical 14 point and um i knew right away he was definitely going to be my my number one target yeah so how how wide is he he's 21 inches wide 21 inches wide so he i mean he's super wide buck 14 typical points pretty symmetrical looking yeah very very symmetrical i'm going to call him typical you know i i'm sure some Pope and young scorer is going to see the picture and say, well, he's not exactly typical. Cause he, he's got a couple of the, uh, the King buck points where he shares a common shares, a common base with a couple tines, but well, the King buck got robbed. So I'm anyway, going no. <laughs> to call him typical. So <clears throat> yeah, man. Did you, have you scored him at all? I did score him. Uh, he was, he was just under 160 inches, but he had his G three, and G4 broken on his left side. And I actually, I took a couple of those nice trail camera pictures that I had and, uh, and scaled them up on the computer. And I figured he broke about nine inches. So he would have been, he'd have been not quite that 170 inch mark, but, but probably real close to it. So, man, what were the, what was the beam length on him? Did you, do you remember that? Uh, his beams were, his beams weren't terribly long. I think they were about 22 inches, just under 22, both of them. His uh, his mass is really what kind of kept him from being being a real high scorer. Not that not that his score is is everything, but uh, I think he definitely would have pushed into that gross Boone and Crockett if he if he had a little better mass. But yeah, did you age the deer? I did not have him aged. Um, it's just another one of those things that I've I've really never done. I I I kind of am kicking myself a little bit for not doing it this year on that deer, but. Uh, I, I, I definitely had an, a couple encounters with him last year as he was just a typical 
beautiful clean 10 point last year. Um, and I, I believe he was, I don't know. I, I think he was either three and a half or four and a half last year. So it, it, it's hard to, hard to say for sure, but. He was, but mature this year. I definitely. Say, I mean, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's one of those bucks though, looking at him, you know, I, his frame is just so impressive being 21 inches wide and he's just got tines all over the place. So just a you had a couple of other bucks on uh, on trail camera as well. Were you thinking like Ernie or bust this year, or was it kind of just like any mature buck, but I'd really like it to be this one. <laughs> so I started the year and it, I told myself it was going to be Ernie or bust, but uh, I, I pretty quickly started telling myself it was going to be a mature buck. Hopefully Ernie. I was, I, I mean, my, my goal was to hunt Ernie. And if, if another mature buck showed up in the area while I was hunting him, I would make that decision if I had to. But, um, I had some other bucks that I certainly back around home. I was, I was sort of trying to hunt, not very hard. Cause I really wanted to, <laughs> I really wanted to kill Ernie, but, uh, um, towards getting towards the start of November, I was kind of a little more in the mindset of, I was just hoping to kill a mature buck by then. And thankfully he was, he was the one that, that wandered by, but, uh, I did have actually the night before I, I shot him, I had an encounter back home with a buck that I call ET. And if you see my Instagram, you've probably seen ET before he's, a I believe a five-year-old and this year he is a four corn. So he's a five-year-old four point, but he's, uh, he's just, he's real, real tall and he's got a really good mass. And I've had a uh, three years of pictures of him and he's not changed other than getting a little bit taller and a little bit more massive every year. And, uh, I had an encounter with him the night before and, uh, he was, he was chasing a couple does one of the does ran right by my stand and I said, well, you know what, if he, if he comes by chasing her, I'm, I'm going to shoot him. And it, I, I think in my head, I just, I knew it would be easier for my, my family if I was done hunting and, and he's a, he's a mature buck. And at the end of the day, that's, that's what I wanted to shoot was a mature buck. And albeit he's a four point, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he turned and he ran the opposite way and I didn't get that shot at him, but um, it, it worked out well for me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when, when did the story of Ernie begin? Like, when did you first become aware of this buck? You, you at least have a little bit of history with him. Yeah. So last year, um, last year he was just a real nice 10 point. And, um, towards the end of the year, he was, he was the biggest buck that was still on my uncle's farm. And uh, I think, I don't remember the exact date, maybe it was mid-November, like the 13th or 14th, somewhere right before gun season. Um, I had an encounter with him and I actually came to a full draw on him. I needed him to take one more step. And I think uh, it was, it was in the morning and I, I think the, the thermals were pulling up hard and, and I think the predominant wind just had a, enough of a wind that he caught me and never took that final step that he needed to take for me to get an arrow in him that day. And I'm sure glad he didn't. Um, so this year 
fast forward to getting the pictures of the 14 point. I didn't, I didn't recognize at first that it was him, but he has, uh, he has real distinctive kind of curved tines. My, when my uncle saw him, he called him the sickle buck because he's, his tines kind of look like a, a sickle on the back. They're real curved. And I looked, uh, I looked back at the pictures of, of that 10 point from last year and he's got the exact same, same frame, same shape, those same curved tines. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that it's him. I mean, he lived this year in the exact same area that he was last year. So I guess last year was about well, mid, mid October, really, he showed up and then he just never left. So I don't know where he came from, but, um, never never left and i'm glad he didn't so yeah did you guys have him through the summer as well like did he did he hang out all through uh, yeah. uh, late season and all that or yeah I, I got my last picture of him last year um oh probably like the second week of december i got my last picture of him last year and then i don't know so he mu- he must have had a winter range somewhere a little further off that he went to and then um, I took cameras over to my uncle's probably the oh, first week of July this year. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until, well, right after velvet shed. So it must've been somewhere around the last week of August, first week of September that I got the first picture of him this year. So I don't think he was necessarily living 100% of the time on our property, but he, he showed up last year during the rut and then he showed up a little earlier this year and, and made himself at home. <laughs> Man, you always hear about those guys who've been watching a giant buck all summer long in velvet and then the deer disappears. It's not often you're on the other end of the thing. You say, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you say, well, I haven't, I haven't seen him all summer, but man, as soon as velvet shed, he showed up. Unfortunately, I've been on the other, on the other side of that enough times. So I'm glad yeah. I got lucky this time. And little give and take there. Yeah, for sure. Man, that's awesome. So did, when you recognize, when was it that you recognized that this was the same buck? Like how, how quick and then, and then doubling on that or, or, or following up on that, did anything you learned about him last year sort of key you in on this year? Like, did you take lessons you learned with him last year and bring them into this year? Um, yeah. So I, I think it took me probably a couple of weeks before I, I was really looking at him and I don't know why I, I really don't know why I was, I think I was just comparing some pictures from last year, maybe trying to, trying to figure out if he was a buck that I had on camera last year. And, and that's when I noticed the, the similarities in the shape, shape of his rack. And uh, so it, it took me a little bit to realize that it was him. Um, I don't think I really, I don't think I really used too much from last year other than he was, he was using the same area. He was on the same cameras as last year. And I, I knew, I knew that area and I knew where, where I would probably have the best chance of setting up on him, just knowing off of, off of the trail cameras where he was at. And so I didn't, I knew, I knew where I had the encounter with him last year would, would, be an area that I would hunt this year in hopes of having an encounter just because that's the area he was in. And I knew, I knew it was a good funnel that the bucks used a lot. And 
Um, and that was actually, I don't know that it was the exact same tree that I was sitting in last year that I took the, or that I had the encounter with them last year, but I, I sat that tree and had the first encounter with them this year or the encounter, the, let's see the first encounter of the day I shot them. Cause I had two encounters with them that day, but. Yeah. Oh, okay, man. That that's gotta be soul crushing when you miss the first encounter, but uh, Hey, we're, we'll get, we'll get to that part. I, I do want to hear first though. Like, um, did you have an early season tactic for this buck or was this kind of a, is this more of a, we're going to watch it. We're going to sit back. We're going to watch the cameras, see what the deer are doing. We know where the bucks like to cruise. We're not going to pressure the property. We're going to wait until the rut rolls around. So had I not spent two weeks in Montana chasing elk, I certainly would have been um, more inclined to be chasing him earlier in the season because I did have, I had a lot of daylight pictures of him early in the season. Um, so I know, I, I, I know I could have probably had at least one encounter with him in the early season, but, uh, taking two weeks off to go to Montana is, uh, is hard enough on the wife and kids already. So I didn't want to push, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to push trying to get over there and, and, uh, hunt this deer. So I, I kind of just made that decision that I was going to wait, um, wait until, until a little closer to the rut rolled around and I was getting more daylight activity in that area. And I mean, meanwhile, my, my dad was over there a few times trying to hunt them and was never real aggressive on them just because, and that, I guess that's another tactic that we, a lot of times we do wait on cameras telling us and, and scrapes and things like that, telling us when, when to go into certain areas. So he was, he was going to be a, a, a rut type buck for me or a pre-rut buck. Honestly, I, that's, that's kind of my favorite time to hunt is that, that and a week leading up, up to the rut. Um, so I, I, I would have liked to have hunted him earlier in the season, but with the circumstances, what they were, I, I knew I was going to wait until a little later. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I saw on Instagram, you were talking about your elk hunt and that's actually the first time I reached out to you. I was like, Hey man, you're, you're heading West. Like let's, let's talk about this. Cause I was thinking, you know, projecting for next year, like let's start talking elk and how to get ready for a Western hunt. And yeah. then you, you slayed this giant. So well, we'll have you cool. on again to talk about the elk hunt and that's everything true. that goes into heading West. I mean, you've got a bunch of huge mule deer on the wall behind you. So, uh, <laughs> obviously you know what you're doing out there. So, uh, all right. So what's that? I don't know about that. Oh, <laughs> well, at least you get lucky. So maybe we'll listen to you and get lucky. There you go. Um, all right. So you've got this buck. He's coming in um, regularly. You're getting, when, when did you sort of hit the gas and say, okay, now it's time to, for me to get after him? Um, I think I got a, I got a couple daylight pictures of him around the 26th of October. And it was, it was, I think I had two or three daylight photos of him in one day on different cameras. So I knew he was, I knew he was on his feet. I knew he was looking for does. And when was that again? Uh, some, I believe it was the 26th of October, 26, October, 26 okay. 27th, somewhere, somewhere around there. Um, but I got several pictures of him on different cameras in one day uh, cruising so that was my first indication that it's, it's time to, time to slip in and try and get on them. Um, 
I didn't end up getting over there for a few days after that, but starting right around that 26th, 27th time, I think almost every day I had daylight pictures of him on two or three different cameras in this, oh, I don't know, probably 500, 500 yard square area that I was kind of focused on. And so you finally got over there to start hunting him on what, November 1st? Um, so I was going to go down, I was going to go down the 31st of October and my daughter got sick. So I stayed home the 31st and the 1st. And I think it was actually my wife who said, you need to go, you need to go hunt. Cause I was a little, a little crabby and <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got this, I got this biggest buck of my life on camera and he's in daylight and I, all I want to do is go hunt him. And, and, you know, you can't, you can't help that your kids get sick and I definitely yeah. needed to stay home. And, but I was certainly a little bit, a little bit, a little bit crabby cause I wanted to be out in the woods and you know, it's my, my favorite time of year. So she finally said, you know what, get out there, go hunt. And, uh, and I, I got out there on November 2nd was the, was the day that I, I got up at, well, my uncle's is, uh, about two hours exactly away from us here in, in Fort. So I got up at about three in the morning and made the drive over, got it all settled up in the stand for the, the November 2nd hunt. Man. So I, I think we killed on the same day this year then, uh, except my buck is about the size of one of your, one of the tines on your buck. So, oh, cool. uh, but, <laughs> so yeah, November 2nd was a, it was a good, a good day this year. So, yeah. um, all right. So you, you get over there, you're, you're heading in on the second, um, for the first, so you're really just getting started. Yeah. So yeah. walk, walk me through the hunts leading up to, or the hunt leading up to, you know, when you shot him. So I knew actually, uh, I think that the two days before I didn't have any pictures of him. So I was, I was a little bit nervous that he was, had either found a doe and was, was laying tight with her or had, had maybe wandered off a little bit, but, uh, I knew I still had to be there and, and hoped that he was still close by. So I was, um, I was going to hunt the area where I had the encounter with him the year before. And, uh, I, I told myself that I was going to sit in this stand all day. Um, I, I like I, a spot like that, you know, we get a lot of that 10 to two activity. So I, I really wanted to, wanted to sit this spot all day. Okay. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the spot. So you're, you're calling this kind of a, it's a, a sweet rut spot, right? The midday movement kind of can be expected. So what are we looking at here as far as how, how it lays out? Yeah. So it's, uh, there's a, there's a probably about a 10 acre CRP field and off of that CRP field is a little ridge that comes down to a rocky point and on both sides of the ridge, you have real good thick bedding that uh, is, is one of those notorious mature buck bedding areas. And uh, this spot is kind of just a corridor between those two those two bedding areas. And the deer also use this ridge to run up to the CRP, which is then adjacent to a big uh, a big egg field. So they're using it as some some food travel, but a lot of it, it's mostly just a, a mature buck corridor is, is 
kind of, you know, you're not going to see, you're not going to see a hundred deer a day there, but you're, you're almost guaranteed to see a, a buck and a lot of times a good buck in this area. So. Okay. So you've um, got, you've got these two known bedding areas to either side. Did you have, are, are there does using this CRP to bed in or? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep, so you kind of got, you got a little bit of everything going for you. Yep. Right there in the spot. It's a, a real good, one of those historic good spots, you know, we've killed, my dad has killed a couple really good bucks in that same area. And it's just one of those where if you can beat the uncles and my dad in there and be the first one in, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to probably kill a good buck. So. Uh, so is is it first come first serve on this place? Yeah. I mean, we, we all have a really good, a good relationship. We, we kind of just, you know, talk to each other about where we want to hunt that specific day and, and, and head in. And it is, uh, you know, it, 300 acres is a good chunk, but when you've got five, four or five, maybe sometimes six bow hunters in there, it can get, it gets cozy. And, and we know that those mature bucks, they don't like pressure. So they start feeling that pressure and they, they head out. So we, we try and, you know, we try and get in and out as, as best we can without bumping too many deer and play the wind as best we can. And, and just, you know, be, be courteous to each other and we're not we're we're never trying to tell someone they can't hunt a certain area or anything like that so i try and i try and share as many trail camera pictures as i can with all of them and they they know where there's good bucks and so sweet yeah. so you get you get there you got up way early you make the drive you get there are you in the stand before daylight are you moving in at gray light how's that work um I've always kind of been one, one to move in right as the sun is coming up. But on this specific hunt, I I wanted to be in plenty before daylight. So I got, I got in the tree a good, probably 45 minutes before, before daylight. So I, I just, I don't know why I chose to do that. Honestly, I just, I, I just kind of thought that it was, I wanted to get in there, get set up and, and make sure I was set up hoping that he would be cruising at that first light. So sure. Sure. All right. So how did it play out? Well, um, I had said earlier, I was, I was planning on, on hunting this spot all day and I saw one lone fawn at about seven 30 in the morning. And that was all I saw until, um, at about 1145, I, I had kind of made the decision that I needed to make something happen. I was only staying for one day also. So I was, I was going to drive back home that night. Oh, okay. So I, I kind of made the decision that I, I needed to, to make a move and make something happen here. Cause it just wasn't happening in this spot. So I, uh, I was in my climber. So I climbed down, got everything packed up and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I took, uh, I took about two steps away from my tree and I, I heard a crunch over, over to my right, which is the direction of the, the thick bedding. And I look over and here's a doe kind of trotting, slowly trotting right at me. And she's at about 35 yards by not, or by the time I saw her. And I just real quick got down on my knee and, and uh, it happened so fast. I, I mean, I could see movement behind her and I just remember 
seeing this wall of tines right up behind her. And I just thought to myself, you know, holy crap, it's him. Uh. And I'm on the ground, you know, three steps away from the tree that I was just in. And uh, I, I was able to get an arrow knocked. Um, the doe saw me, but she, she wasn't sure enough of what I was. My wind was blowing good away from them. And uh, he was behind her pushing her a little bit. So I, she didn't have quite the amount of time that I'm sure she wanted to you know, stand there and stare me down. Um, so she, she quarters by me at about 20 yards and, uh, gets behind a, gets behind a bush and I kind of quit paying attention to her and, you know, turn my, my focus to, to Ernie, who's at this time, 25 yards from me on the ground. And he steps out into this, this opening. And I, uh, I, I drew my bow not knowing that this doe was still standing about 25 yards from me, staring at me. So as I drew my bow, she blew and turned and ran and he immediately turned and ran. And I just, I, I remember just feeling so defeated. Like I had just, you know, if I just stayed in that tree for five more minutes, I get a, I, I get a shot at, at this target buck who's, who's coming through at 1215. Um, so they, they circle down into the bottom and, uh, they relax. They, they still had no clue what I was, you know, they, they saw the movement. She knew I was something, but she never had a good enough look at me to be, to be real nervous or real spooked. Um, so they relax down in the bottom and they're about 80, 80, 90 yards from me. I can see him relaxed and he grunted a few times down there. So I knew he wasn't spooked at all. Um, and they, they turned and they kind of headed back up the valley towards where they had come from. So I, I let them get out of there and I, uh, are you still on the ground? You're still on the ground at this point, just watching. Okay. I'm still on the ground, just watching, watching them. And so I let them get away and I, I slowly backed off, um, kind of around the corner and, called my buddy Luke and told him what happened and uh, basically was in tears that, you know, I had this one chance at this buck and, and this is how it happened, you know? And I, my first thought was, I'm just going to get out of here. I don't want to, I don't want to bump them or booger them up any more than I already did. And, and then I kind of started thinking, well, you know, they're moving up towards this other spot where I had a lot of pictures of them and, really they're moving up towards the other side of this thick bedding that I was kind of sitting close to. And, and I, 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 I thought, you know, maybe I should just circle up the opposite way up into that CRP field and get myself into a stand kind of on the edge of that CRP and on the edge of the other edge of that thick, thick bedding that I know they, that he's using. So I called my dad quick and I said, you know, what, what would you do? And, and he, he said, get up there, sir, try and circle ahead of them and see if, you know, see if they come back this afternoon. And so I decided to do that. I, I quick regained a little bit of what composure I had left. And um, 
circled up and got myself into a spot real close to one of my other cameras where I had a lot of good daytime pictures of this buck and got myself up in a tree feeling bad for myself, you know, posting the whole story on Instagram. And so what time is it when you, when you're back, when you're finally up in this next, in this um, next set? I think I got up in the other setup about, <clears throat> Oh, probably about one thirty, I think one, one fifteen, one thirty. Um, and do you have, is this, is this another one of those spots where you're like, I've got a ton of confidence in this spot as well. Kind of just one of those historic producers. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a spot that I've hunted a lot, but it's, it's a spot. I put a camera every year and I get good bucks on every year. Okay. Um, it's, it's a little bit more of a tough spot to, to get to. Cause you almost, I mean, you almost got to walk through either the CRP where the deer are bedded a lot or this thick bedding area to get to it. So it's a tough, it's a tough spot to get to. Um, but it is a, a good historic spot. My dad has an old hang on tree stand that's, you know, grown into the tree there from 25 years ago. So it's, it's definitely a good, a good spot. And I knew knowing that I had a camera right there and I had pictures of him there in the past, I knew it was a spot that he, he obviously used. Um, I didn't have the highest expectations. I was also very down, you know, I, I mean, I was just, I was, I was really feeling like I, I had this opportunity and, and that was probably going to be the last one, you know, um, especially with, with the kids and my wife and I have basically three businesses that we were a part of and running back home. So it's, it's hard to get away. And, you know, I, I was just feeling like I, I had to make that first encounter count and I, not really by anything I did wrong necessarily other than moving, you know, moving my location. I didn't really feel like it was a something that I had done wrong, but I still was, was feeling pretty down that I had missed my opportunity. And anybody who saw my Instagram post, I'm sure could <laughs> attest to that. But um, so I was, I got up in that set. Um, yeah, probably about one thirty, I would say. Um, you know, made my, made my big, long, poor me Instagram post. And, uh, <clears throat> I, I had a, I had a, a fawn, a lone fawn come up and actually bed down right about 25 yards from me down below my tree. And I was sitting there watching that fawn. And I think it was about, about two, two o'clock, two fifteen, And I'm, I was really just kind of daydreaming watching this fawn feeling bad for myself. And I heard a, heard a stick snap over to my left or to my right. And I, I look over and here's a doe standing there about 35 yards. She had just come out of some real thick, thick stuff kind of below me to my right. And I quick grabbed my bow and, and uh, about as, as soon as I grabbed my bow and turned back around, I see movement behind her again. And and wouldn't you know it, two hours after my first encounter, here here comes Ernie again. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so what's your what's your first thought? Like like this is not necessarily what you were expecting. I mean it's what you were hoping for, obviously, but like um, what's your first thought when you realize it's him again? Without using any explicitives here, my first thought was holy 
holy shit, you know, I can't believe it's him. It's him. You know, I think I remember, I remember saying in my head, those were, that was exactly what I said in my head was, holy shit, it's him. And, uh, it was just a, it was an unreal feeling because I mean, just a roller coaster of, of emotions over the last couple hours, you know, and, and really feeling like I wasn't going to get that, that opportunity. And especially not two hours after the first encounter. So, man, and he's what, 35, 40 yards. He's yeah. He's about 40 yards at this time. Yep. And again, kind of the same, the doe is real, real skitt- skittishly quickly moving, moving through the woods. And, uh, um, by this time I'm, I'm standing in my stand and I'm pretty well ready for a shot. They're on a trail that's going to bring them right, right in front of me about 10 yards, 15 yards. And, um, the doe, the doe did everything she needed to do. She quickly worked right by me, right through an opening at about 15 yards on that trail. And she got past my tree and she kind of turned and started heading up towards that CRP. And, um, I, I think that buck didn't want her to get up into that CRP. I think he wanted her to stay down in that thicker stuff. So of course, you know, he can't make it easy on me and just take that 15 yard trail broadside. He turns on a dime at about 15 yards and starts quartering right towards my tree. And, uh, in all in, in one in one motion, I kind of, I, I drew, I turned, I grunted to stop him. And at this time he's 12 yards from me quartering to me, but he's moving real quick trying to get ahead of that doe. So I, I knew it was, you know, it's, it's not an ideal shot. It's a quartering two shot. And, and I knew that, but knowing that it was, you know, 10, 10 to 12 yards, I, I hoped that I could, could bury one pretty good right behind the shoulder. And he wasn't quartered to me hard enough that I was considering a frontal shot or anything. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a real, real hard on frontal quarter, but um, so I, I, I do this one motion to turn, draw, grunt, stop him, And he, uh, he stopped and I'm bringing my pins over and, you know, s- trying to as quickly get my pin settled where I want it. And, and I could see his body language showing that he really, he, wa- he wanted to go again. I, c- I could see his head and chest starting to kind of lean forward. Like he was about to, about to go. And I, I pulled the trigger on the release and I, I I'm not trying to make any excuses here by any stretch of the imagination, but I think just seeing his, his chest and head kind of leaning forward, like he was ready to go. I think that kind of made me flinch a little bit. And I, uh, I flinched and I, I pulled the shot back and I knew immediately that I had hit him probably liver. So I, I hit him high, high liver and I knew I knew right away and that was the first, my first thought right after I released the arrow was, you know, that it, it wasn't, the arrow wasn't where I wanted it to be, uh, unfortunately. 
So now I get to add that to my roller coaster of, of things that have happened to me over the last two hours. Now I unfortunately made a less than stellar shot. Um, and what time is it when you shot the buck? I, it was, it was shortly after two o'clock. I'm, I'm thinking it was about 10 oh, after man. two. So you hadn't been there long. No, gosh, I wasn't this there is... more than probably 45 minutes, man. Okay. <laughs> this is all, this is all happening pretty fast. And, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's what I thought. It was just, it was unbelievable to me that, you know, I could have this encounter at noon or twelve fifteen, whatever it was. Uh, and, and circle up ahead of them and, and get in a spot where less than two hours later, here they come again. You know, it just, it's just, it was, it was wild. I mean, I, I got very lucky twice really. <laughs> Man. So, All right. So, so you make the shot, it's, it's high and back. You're not real pleased. What's your first step? Are you, are you fretting it immediately? Is there some sense of relief? I, I, I know that, that feeling, I, I shot a nice buck in October this year that I did not recover. And as soon as I watched that arrow go in, it just, my heart sank. Like I just, I knew immediately like i didn't even get down before i had a dog tracker on the phone <laughs> i was like hey man hey i'm gonna need you yeah so so what what are you doing at that point so i mean you know and that it was such a mixed a mixed emotion you know none no hunter out there wants to see a bad shot none of us are out there trying to make bad shots and it it does happen you know but it, it was still a sense of happiness that I, you know, I, I've got an arrow in them. It's an arrow that I know, I know is going to kill them. What are you shooting? Um, so my, my bow setup, I'm shooting a, a new Hoyt, the RX five, um, shooting an Easton axis arrow and, uh, uh, rage broadhead. Okay. So there's all I can hear the booze already of the rage, the, the rage haters, but <laughs> no, nah, man, no. If you, if you hit a deer far back, I don't care what you say. I want a big yep. flipping expandable all day long. Yeah. I want, I want three inches of cutting diameter yep. if I hit a deer far back. Now, if I hit him in the shoulder, exactly. I want a, I want a 200 grain single bevel, yep. which is what I shot my deer with this year, yep. uh, left zero blood trail and you know, yeah. Now the deer fell over in 20 yards, but, yeah. but again, if I, if I'm hitting them in the liver, man, give me a rage all day long. Yeah. And I have, uh, I've, I've joined a little bit of the, the, the heavy arrow craze, not, not super crazy. Um, but I was shooting a, it's 125 grain and I have a little bit of extra weight up front. So I don't, I don't remember exactly what my uh, total arrow weight was. It's not, you know, it's not ranch very high, but it's, uh, it's up there, you know, and, and the arrow did, uh, it didn't, it didn't fully pass through the deer, but I could see it exit or I could see the exit hole and he, there was immediate, immediate blood at the exit hole. So I, I was hopeful, you know, I knew that this arrow was, yes, it was a bad shot and I felt terrible, but at the same time, I knew if I did everything right from there on out, I would, I would, there was a high chance I would recover that deer and sure. for sure going to die. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, after the shot, he, he wheeled and ran kind of straight back to where he came from. And I could see, 
I could see blood on the exit side immediately, which, which I was happy with. Um, but he ran out about 70, 80 yards and stopped and kind of looked back and gave me enough time to get my binocs on him. And I could see, I could see blood at the exit again, and I could see exactly where I hit about, you know, eight, eight to 10 inches further back than I wanted. I knew it was probably liver, mostly liver. Um, and he, uh, he then turned and just slowly started walking downhill um, towards the bottom. So I let him, I let him get completely out of my sight. And uh, I just as quietly as, as I could, I, I packed all my stuff up immediately once, well, not immediately, probably about a half hour after the shot. Um, I packed all my stuff up real quietly and I just walked straight away from, didn't even, didn't even go to the impact site, didn't do anything. Um, I just wanted to get out of there. And, and then I started the phone calls of talking to my dad, talking to my friends, you know, trying to get their ideas and, and their two cents on what, what I needed to do. So I, uh, I ended, I did end up calling a, calling a dog tracker right away. Um, I've never used a dog before. I think, I think it's a great tool to have, especially in that situation, you know, um, shots like that, you don't know what you're going to find for blood. Yeah. Um, so I, and this being my biggest deer and, and a deer that I absolutely didn't want to lose and would have been heartbroken to lose. I, I knew right away I was going to at least talk to a tracker and see what their, their thoughts were and whether or not they even thought I needed to have them come out. And, um, so I, I made the decision that I was going to wait overnight on them. Um, being, being that it was back where it was, I, I didn't even want to try and get in there after, uh, I didn't want to try and get in there after eight, 10 hours in the dark, not knowing yep. what you're going to find for blood and things like that. So made the decision to, thank you, made the decision to, uh, wait until the next morning to get in there after them. So how'd you sleep? You know, I surprisingly slept all right. Um, I was just emotionally drained, I think. And oh, yeah. I, I mean, I was exhausted. I'd been up since, you know, two 30 in the morning and yeah, I slept. Okay. Uh, I did, uh, so back to the dog tracker, uh, thing a little bit. Um, I talked to, oh man, I wish I, uh, spring Valley kennels, I believe, or spring spring Valley tracking is who I ended up uh, having out. Um, but when I talked to him at first, it was kind of, you know, we think the deer's likely going to be dead and hopefully he's dead within you know 100 yards dies in his first bed um so i ended up talking to them later that night and they had a couple more calls come in and and uh sean told me he said well you kind of need to make a decision here whether you want whether you want me or not because i got a couple other calls and i said well i'm definitely going to have you come out i don't you know i don't know what i'm about to to walk into he could be dead 60 yards down the hill uh, and I would, I would have been fine with that. I would have been happy to have the dog there, you know? Um, so knowing, knowing that I had the dog coming the next day and that I did everything right. I didn't push him. I didn't, I didn't do anything, anything to further bump him 
away. I I had pretty high hopes that I would that I'd find them in the morning. So I think that I think that helped me sleep a little better. <laughs> yep. So you sleep a little bit that night. You get up the next morning. Are are you out there at the crack of dawn? Or are you like, hey, I'm just wait. I'm I'm gonna wait till the tracker gets here and not doing anything until then. So we had a we had a pretty heavy frost that night. Um, so we had to we had to wait until the majority of that frost was off the ground so that the dog could could pick up the scent that he needed to. Um, I just waited for the dog. I didn't. I didn't even want to go out there because I knew, I knew I would start looking for blood, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't. Yep. You know, I just wanted to wait. So, um, I think it was about oh about nine o'clock, a little after nine o'clock, when we met up with the tracker and probably probably picked up the track about nine thirty, ten o'clock ish, I, I believe. And. Uh, right away at impact, there was, there was pretty good blood. Um, we were able to, we were able to follow really good blood for about probably about 300 yards, 350 yards. Um, and he hadn't bedded, which made me nervous. And it made, it made Sean the tracker a little bit nervous <laughs> mm, yeah. just that he hadn't he had tip, typically a, a gut shot or a liver shot deer will, he said he usually usually bed up fairly quickly. Um, so the fact that he had gone 350 yards without bedding was was a little a little nerve wracking, but it also was okay because he hadn't bedded six different times and and it it kept us on a blood trail really is what it did. Yep. Um, but we ended up uh, we ended up getting about oh I don't know at about the f- that 350 400 yard mark um we we very quickly lost blood um and of course the deer is following a a real a real nice deer trail most of the way and of course right where we lose blood the the trail splits and it splits into like three different trails so we have no clue which way he went from from where we had lost blood and um the dog, uh, the dog did a good job and, and followed the correct trail. Um, but she kept, uh, she kept getting to a certain spot about a hundred yards further up the trail where she would lose it. Hmm. And two or three different times, this, he kind of brought the, the dog back and the dog followed that trail. And at about the exact same spot, every time she would lose that trail and, um, so we, you know, we were at that point, we were starting to, starting to worry a little bit, like how, first of all, why did, why does she, why is she just suddenly losing this trail? And, um, we kind of started doing a little bit of a grid search. Uh, I took, I took one of the lower trails. My dad took one of the the higher trails and, uh, all three of these trails kind of just parallel one another. So I took this lower trail and I'm looking for blood going pretty slow and, I had probably gone about a hundred yards and I'm not finding any blood. And, um, Sean, the tracker was, was further up and he was, he was about ready to go. He had another dog in the truck with him. That was a, a little bit older, more experienced dog. So he was, he was going to head back and grab that dog. And right about that same time, I was, I was looking real hard on the ground for any blood and 
I just, I happened to look up and about 15, 20 yards ahead of me in a, in a thick bush, I could just see, uh, see the right side of his rack laying, laying kind of, uh, I think, I think he was bedded there and he fell backwards when he, when he finally died. So his head was kind of up stuck in this bush. And uh, <laughs> so I saw the rack and I'm like, my first instinct in my head was, you know, Oh crap. He's still alive. Oh man. Just the way his head was, his head was almost like it was up. And, uh, the more I, the more I stood there for a few seconds, I kind of realized that, that he, he was in fact dead. And I think I let out a few, a few loud, explicit swear words and, uh, <laughs> joyful, <laughs> joyful swear words. So, the, so the deer, had he taken the trail that you were on, do you think, or what is he on the upper trail and kind of, yep. So we were able to follow, we were able to backtrack from where he was. Okay. So he, uh, that spot that the dog kept losing him, he had taken a hard 90 off the trail and bedded about 40 yards below the trail Gotcha. And, and died there. And, uh, it was so thick in the spot that we were tracking that you just, you couldn't hardly see much more than 15, 20 yards ahead of you. Yeah. So Sean couldn't see him from that trail. And, and it, it just, it took me walking right on this, this trail where I ended up finding him dead to, to find him. So, but it was, oh man, it was such a relief when, when we finally found him, and, and it really wasn't, you know, it was about a 500 yard track. And we were only out there for, I don't know, probably a, a little over an hour. So it wasn't like it was a real long track, but an hour when you're looking for your biggest deer feels like, feels like an eternity really, especially after losing blood and, you know, the dog had kind of lost the track and it was, it was, it was starting to feel kind of like this wasn't going to be as easy as I had hoped it would be, but thankfully right about that time I was, I was starting to panic a little bit. We found them. So, okay. I was, I was just going to ask, had you, had you started to lose confidence yet? Or was it, were you uh, still kind of like, oh, we're going to find it. I just don't know how hard it'll be. So the, the terrain was in our favor a little bit as well. Um, if you, if you picture, picture a big, a big cut cornfield with, uh, with, with two kind of, um, two ditches that are sort of like peninsulas that stick up into the cornfield. So this buck was heading up into one of these peninsulas. And I knew that, I mean, I, I knew he was, he was wounded and he was hit hard enough that there's no way he's going to walk out into this open cut cornfield. So I had, I still had high hopes that he was up in this, this finger somewhere. So I hadn't, I hadn't totally started to panic yet, but I was, I was losing, I would say I was losing a little confidence, you know, that, that he was going to be there or, you know, just, I was really hoping, you know, we were going to walk up on him in his first bed, a hundred yards from where I hit him. And that would be, you know, the, the happy ending, but it was, it, it was starting to turn into a little bit of a nightmare, but not quite. So it didn't quite get there. Well, man, he's a beautiful buck. I'm glad, I'm glad you were able to, able to recover him. Uh, when you, when you cleaned the deer, what, what, what was your shot? Like, what's the verdict on the shot? So it was, it was pretty much purely liver and, uh, um, liver and gut 
and it, uh, it exited. When I, when I was watching him, I had thought that it exited right in front of his hind quarter or his hind leg, where actually it, it came out right, almost right on that hind leg bone. So I think, I think maybe that could be what stopped the arrow from, from fully passing through was it maybe deflected off that. I was up in the, I mean, I was in the last rib, so I, I definitely hit, it hit good liver gut. And then, uh, it just exited out more, more in a little bit of the ham meat than I had anticipated, which, uh, I, I think caused us to not have quite as much blood as maybe we could have had, had it exited a little more up in the stomach area, but. How long could you, did you guys have an estimate of how long you thought he had been dead when you found him? You know, for as cold as it was, he really wasn't, he wasn't quite as stiff as I would have expected him to be. So I, I, I do think that unfortunately he, he probably lived for, I mean, at least a good 12 to, I, I don't know, 12, 12 to 16 hours, maybe it's, 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 it's hard to say, you know, but, but he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't stiff as could be, especially after, after a good hard freeze like that. I really thought he would have been a little more stiff than he was. So not, not happy about it, about the shot, but you know, it happens, it happens to all of us. So. Well, it's something we can all kind of learn from. And I, and I think, uh, if nothing else, you know, there's a difference between making a bad shot and taking a bad shot, right? You, you make a bad shot. That's going to happen. You know, don't be, don't be dumb and take bad shots, you know, that are, that are risky, but, but man, when it comes to a quartering deer, I think it just goes to show, uh, just how tricky that can be to gauge, you know, where that arrow is going to go with, on any kind of a quartering shot. I mean, yeah. Yep. It, it it can it can do all sorts of weird and crazy things. Yeah. Um but yeah, glad you recovered the deer. As as you're looking back at um at this deer specifically, sort of how your season played out, uh what are what are some of the things that you're you're like, okay, this is these one or two things are key takeaways for me um that maybe could help other folks as we're uh begin you know, deer season's practically over at this point, uh, unless you're Unless you're not tagged out yet and you're going to go get after it in the cold weather, which doesn't sound real great. But um, anyways, what are some things that we can learn and take away from this hunt? You know, my I think my biggest takeaways from this aren't aren't necessarily maybe the tactics that I used during the hunt, but um, after the hunt for sure, um, I'll touch on that. But, you know... I was, I was, I was so close to just giving up on this deer and saying, you know what, I had an encounter, I bumped him or sort of bumped him, you know, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give up on him for today. And, and I think obviously, I mean, it worked in my favor that I, I chose not to, to give up on him and to, to move to another area that I knew that he used and that I felt like he I felt like he really wanted that doe to stay in that, that core area, that, that thick bedding area. And I think that's, you know, that's one of those things. A lot of times those, those mature bucks, they want to breed their does in their bedroom or where they're comfortable. And, and I knew that if I could, if I could get around ahead of them 
I, I could possibly have another chance. And I think a lot of people would have, like I was planning on doing, you know, or like I, my initial thought was, I'm just going to give up for the day and I'm just going to get out of here and, and, you know, hope, hope I get a chance tomorrow or the next time I come out or whenever. I think, I, I think that can be, that can be used more often, you know, you, you, it, it's so easy to give up sometimes and you gotta, you gotta fight through all the, the poor me, bad feelings that you're having and, and, and keep after them. Cause it, you know, it's, it's a grind. It really is. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad I made that decision. And I, I think that's, that's something that I, I will always remember and, and use as an example of, you know, just stay with them. Even, even when you bump them, you know, I mean that, that whole, I'm not a hundred percent familiar. And I know this isn't exactly the same as the, the bump and dump that we've all heard the term, but, but in a way this was sort of a, you know, I bumped him and I knew, I knew I was in the right area and I knew he'd want to come back into that bedding area. And I set up in a spot that I hoped as he was coming back through, you know, I would, I'd get a shot at him and I did. So I think, I don't know that that's a perfect example of it. Um, you know, I've heard a few other podcasts talk about it and, um, but I, I was, I was happy that I stuck with it and, and, and was able to make it happen. Um, and, uh, secondly, I think the, you know, recognizing that I made a bad shot and, and the steps that you take after a bad shot are, are so important. And a lot of people, you know, they, they just want to go get their buck and they just want to start chasing up, taking, taking up that blood trail and, you know, talking to Sean, the tracker, he says, that's, you know, that's the, the single-handedly most important thing is to, to not push these deer after they've been, they've been hit because you, you know, you push them and, and they're, they're going to go a mile. So I, I think, I think a lot can be learned from the way that I handled that. And I was, I wanted, I wanted so bad to, you know, go try and find my deer. And I, I even thought about, you know, going out there in the dark, trying to find them, giving them eight hours and going to look for them. And, and I just said, no, you know, I need to, I need to give him overnight and I, I don't want to risk bumping him or pushing him. And How far did you guys go with no blood? Uh, probably a little over a hundred yards at the end there with no blood. And he'd made a hard turn during that time. That, um, it wasn't until probably about 80, 90 yards into the track with, with no blood was where the dog lost him. And he had made that hard turn. We really aren't even, even Sean, the, uh, the, the tracker there that was with me, he was, he was kind of dumbfounded as to how this deer was, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't spraying blood by any means, but we were following a real, a real good blood trail. I mean, very, very easy easily visible blood trail and it just stopped like just on a dime and you know Sean had kind of thought that maybe you know maybe that buck ended up bumping into a doe up there and and kind of took off after her or, or something because it just he said 99% of the time you know you, you start slowly losing blood you don't just you don't just go from having a, a clearly visible blood trail to just like nothing 
So, um, but after, after that point, we went about a hundred yards and, and that was when the deer took that hard turn and, and bedded down finally his final bed. Yeah. So if you, if you would have gotten after him the night before, just following blood, you'd have, you'd have had a real tough time. And at, at best you probably would have bumped him cause he was probably still alive at eight hours. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I, with him not bleeding, <clears throat> I would have, I would have followed blood and I would have been excited following blood going, all right, you know, we're going to find him. Look at all this blood. And then it goes to boom, nothing. And by that time, you've got two or three guys out there with you talking, whatever, making noise. And that deer's bedded only a hundred yards from you watching, you know, watching that back trail. And yeah, he probably would have gotten up and, and gone another, who knows how far, but man, I think I, I, I'm, I'm very happy that, uh, you know, between myself and everybody that I talked to, you know, calling friends, calling my dad, asking what they would do that, I made the, made the right decision and, you know, it's never an easy one to, to let a deer like that lay, but I think in the end, it's the right one. Well, man, thanks so much for your time. I think these are two excellent lessons. You know, I I think oftentimes we get caught up in the lessons that we learn uh, need to be tactics based, but they, they really don't. I mean, you look, there are a thousand different tactics to use to be successful in hunting. It really comes down to the, the, to becoming more, uh, it's more about becoming a kind of hunter rather than a hunter that does certain things. And I think that's what we just honed in on, uh, honed in on right here. You know, the kind of hunter that doesn't give up uh, when the chips are kind of not falling his way. And then the kind of hunter that, that does the right thing, even though his emotions are telling him to do something very different when it comes to, man, I just want to go get my hands on that buck, you know? So yeah, man, congratulations again. Beautiful, beautiful deer. If, uh, if folks want to find out more, uh, about you or see some of your, uh, some of the deer that you've been putting down, where can they, uh, where can they find you? Um, I suppose Instagram would be about the only place that I, I really, a lot of my, uh, my, my deer hunting, uh, trials and tribulations, I guess. Um, <laughs> Low profile kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll post a few things on Facebook, but I don't, uh, I don't do any of the, the TikTok or whatever the, the new trends are these days, I guess, but I like what, to t- TikTok, whatever that is. I yeah, don't even whatever know. That is. I like to, <laughs> I like to post my hunting stuff on Instagram. So that's, uh, yeah. Yep. And feel free to, to, I don't know if you can link that or anything, my handle, if anybody wants to see it, but, uh, yep, I can throw that in there. Okay. Absolutely. Sweet, man. Well, thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll catch up again to talk about uh, talk about doing some Western stuff. I'm curious to hear the story on some of the mule deer behind you and how you got plugged into that. And then also hear what you learned from your, that was your first elk hunt this year, right? That was my first elk hunt. Yeah. A lot of good, a lot of good, uh, good lessons learned there. A few, a few interesting grizzly, no, no, no grizzly encounters for me, but some grizzly encounters for the group and for a camp so yeah we had a an interesting time so sweet well i'll have you on again we'll talk about some of that stuff thanks for your time today though appreciate it sounds great thank you and that is going to do it for this week's episode of the wisconsin sportsman podcast i really hope you enjoyed this episode i know that i did uh you know it's this time of year that i sit back and i start asking myself the question okay what lessons have i learned from this past year like what can i take away from this year to make myself a better happier and more successful hunter next year 
And, uh, you know, I think the two lessons that Mitch um, mentioned actually are super, super helpful. Uh, you know, the, the one that he talked about, about, you know, the, the things you do after making a questionable shot oftentimes determine the outcome. Like if you want to, if, if you make a bad shot, you know, it's at that moment that you've got the opportunity to slow down and say, okay, wait a second. I'm going to make sure that, you know, even though things have not gone my way up to this point, I'm going to do everything right from here on out. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to back out. I'm going to get some buddies. I'm going to call a dog tracker. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this deer and make sure that I do this thing right. Uh, and then that, that second lesson of not giving up, you know, he could have uh, gone home. He could have left that deer behind and he could have, um, yeah, could have let that thing walk right out of his life. But instead he, he kept going. He tried to get around the deer. Um, he was thinking, you know, in terms of what's the next place that this deer is going to go. And so uh, two big lessons that we can take away and uh, put in our back pocket and take with us into next year to make us better deer hunters. Do things right after the shot and don't ever give up when it looks like the the chips are not falling in your favor. For all of you heading out uh, on that late season grind, good luck to you in the next couple of weeks. However it is you're spending your time over the next couple of weeks, though, make sure that you are getting outside and doing something to enjoy the incredible resource that is ours as Wisconsin sportsmen. Mm -hmm.